Welcome to The Reforming Lounge, a podcast on spiritual formation for the wandering heart. Every Wednesday, we gather to discuss questions centered around mental health and discipleship in the context of the local church. Well, good morning, guys. Welcome to The Reforming Lounge. We hope that you are doing well. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm one of the hosts here at The Reforming Lounge, and I am with Fowler, who is the co-host of The Reforming yep. What's up, dude? Not much, man. How are you? I'm just chilling, bro. Um, I'm having an old fashioned. So it's a great story. <laughs> so um, that guy, that going for me. What What are you drinking? Uh, in a general sense, I'm drinking water. In a specific sense, apparently, I'm drinking water with one of my beard hairs that I think fell down in there. <laughs> That's so, I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> my wife's gonna hear this, and she's she gonna is. be appalled. Does right? she? Uh, does your Does your wife listen to the podcast? Ah, uh, man, why did you ask me that? Oh, I mean, mine doesn't. <laughs> mine hasn't. I mean, I'll say it. <laughs> yes, I don't think she has either. She said that she's going to, but I don't think she has yet. I think so. I think uh, when I asked Rebecca, not that she thinks of it this way, but when I asked Rebecca, I said, "Hey, did you listen to Fowler and I's uh, podcast?" And she just did, like she was like, "No." Like I think she sees it like that's a fun project with you and your little friend. Like, ouch. <laughs> and I was like, "We're talking about real things, and it matters." It does matter? It does a lot of well, other people listen to the podcast? Yeah. Th- so people that I know that listen to podcasts have listened to the podcast, and so that's you know, that's meaningful to me. Like these people that just don't really listen to podcasts that are in my circle. I'm not really expecting them to start doing that because now I'm making a podcast. Yeah. So you should you be like, do you know what we're talking about here and why you need to yeah. listen to this? Uh, you know, whatever. Just figure if they'll come, they'll come. Yeah. So this is uh, I think this is like episode nine. And so before we get into all the, the nitty gritty of this, this topic, um, one of the things that uh, I would hope people, um, our listeners would do is now that we're on Apple and Google, we're waking our, we're making our way to Spotify is for our listeners. If they would be so kind and gracious to leave us a five-star review on Apple. I think you can do that on Google. I don't know. I'm not on Google, but at the very minimum on, on Apple podcasts, that would be wonderful, greatly appreciated. And you receive salvation points when you do that. So Yep. Yeah. <laughs> sound Got a little nervous there. Up in here. No. It just sounds like you know Catholicism theology. Like we're we're dropping some uh, oh, indulgences. Man, the word. There you go. There you go. Yeah, there man. Go. Some indulgences. Do this, and the kingdom of God will be near. Um. <laughs> man. So I feel as though. The topic of today's discussion is is kind of a dense one, and I want to I want to make a couple of I wanted to say a couple of things before before diving in. Like I realize that a lot of the topics that we cover, I think, are one very helpful and beneficial, and number two, a lot of the topics are far more dense than what we cover in the span of our 45, 50 minute podcast. And I, I say that just based on this past week, our second episode on the Enneagram has just released. And so I know you wanted to address some things at a greater understanding or a greater level regarding 
tools such as the Enneagram, but also as we continue to pump out content, uh, I just I wanted to put that on the forefront. Like we recognize that a lot of the topics that we discuss are far more dense than uh, what we discuss here on the podcast, just because there, there can be several nuances to walk through. So anyway, sorry, yeah. I had a burp. Anyway, what? No, you're good. You're good. No, it's just affirming that. Yeah, that's true. So I think that's particularly relevant. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's particularly relevant with this topic because. Yeah. What are we talking uh, about today? Oh, wait, finish your thought and then answer the question. What are we talking about today? Well, I'll do both simultaneously <laughs> because I'm that skilled. Uh, we're talking about abuse in the church. And yeah. so obviously this could be a really um, just, I mean, a topic that goes in so many different directions. Yeah. Um, and there's so many different experiences mm-hmm. and there's very valid, uh, tremendous hurt around this topic. Uh, and so, yeah, that's something that we're aware of. So we're not going to talk about it perfectly. We're probably going to hurt at least one person's feelings the way that we talk about it. And that's absolutely not our intention. We want to be respectful, you know, yeah. but yeah, I mean, we're going to drop the ball in some way. I can, yeah. I can say that from the, so, yeah, absolutely. It's I would not agree. intentional. Yeah, no, I agree. Because I mean, abuse in the church is a, it is a very uh, serious and grave topic to that needs to be discussed. Clearly, there are a lot of avenues that are discussing this in light of, particularly in light of 2020, but just overall, especially through social media and various media platforms, like the amount of content that gets pushed up, the amount of books that have been published centered around this clearly uh makes it evident that this is this is a topic that is um that is really serious that should be that shouldn't be taken lightly should be walked about with grace and fully recognizing that there are these depths and nuances that yeah we're just not going to be able to cover in in a podcast but that doesn't mean that we can't revisit this podcast later on yeah absolutely all right. Well, let's do this. Let's let's get into it. Um, and so so let's talk about abuse in the church. How would you begin to and I know I got like all these series of questions, but like how would you begin to address what abuse in the church is? Like what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about spiritual abuse in the church as a result of domineering leadership? Um, what would you what are we specifically addressing? And then perhaps defining it so what i had in mind in particular uh for today is like abuse of power situations um primarily just because i I think that we could do an episode on on each area that it comes into uh because even man i've read this article from uh the gospel coalition a while back um talking about spiritual abuse and how these these terms can be taken and twisted to manipulate people um and i think i'm sure we could do an entire episode on that alone but i what i what i was thinking about when when we started considering addressing this topic was primarily like situations where there's an abuse of power um within relationships in the church when you say relationships in the church, are you so the same thing? I'm talking about just within the people at that church, or in the context of leadership towards congregants, or yeah, both. Yes, though. So, there you go. Both. <laughs> yeah. 
because it could look different in different situations, right? But I think if there's, if I have a small group leader that uh, is, and this would probably be a specific type of church, but if I have a small group leader that has no real training or equipping um, that's leading a group, then that could definitely produce some sort of probably experience that we could consider abusive in some way, yeah. right? Or things that they might be saying to people um, that they think they're just being truthful and um, helpful maybe, uh, but really it's, it's just kind of beating the tar out of people. Yeah. Uh, but then I, I do think there's like, like in the Catholic church in particular, right? There's these situations where the priests are abusing children um, and, and, and that response, the it's, it seems like the response tends to be just kind of relocating um, the priest rather than right. addressing and um, disciplining the the staff member. I mean, I would think removing them in a situation right. like that, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think it happens in a lot of different contexts, but that's mainly what I'm thinking about is the relational stuff that happens within the church, particularly. Yeah. So let's start working through a couple of the questions that I know that we, we had been talking about. And the first one is like, how should we begin to think about relational let's just say let's let's call it this relational abuse and i could i could be butchering that but how should we begin thinking about it as individuals who are covenant members at churches as many of our listeners who attend churches and 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 may have their own um varying experiences or or man by god's grace haven't had an experience like that how should we begin to think about that relational abuse that occurs in the church? I, th I think one of the things we have to start with is knowing that it happens. Mm. And sometimes it's going to happen from people that we feel like we know really well, and maybe we care a lot about, uh, because I think it can, it can, I think what can pop up is if someone is really well known in a church and there's accusations like that made, sometimes they're just not even taken seriously mm. because Sometimes because of how the uh, the person that is experiencing the situation might present it. Um, we've talked about emotional health, right? And so if this person is kind of spun out emotionally, which would make a lot of sense if this is what they're going through, then sometimes it's just dismissed. It's like, right. well, this person couldn't be doing that type of thing. We know him, that kind of idea. Right. Um, so I think we've got to sit with the fact that scripture makes it pretty clear we're not everyone that's in the church is going to be a Christian. Right. right. And, and there's going to be people that, you know, and that doesn't mean that the people that are committing these things definitely aren't Christians, right. but there's going to be people that aren't Christians that are in the church that could be perpetrating it. But there could also be real believers that have gone down a bad path right. um, that are perpetrating it as well. And just because we know them and like them doesn't mean that it's impossible for them to be doing these things. Right. I think that's really good primarily because I, I certainly don't want to use or justify the, 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 the expression um, no one is perfect and we're all human, but that expression does have some truth to that, that for instance, as Christians, as those who belong to Jesus, though the Holy spirit indwells in us, there is still this part of our, uh, nature that is sinful. In other words, there is this thing called the flesh and the flesh has this propensity to want to rebel against God and sin. And 
I often think, um, and again, this is very broad, but I often think individuals don't in the church don't consider, they don't consider the flesh of a, a Christian. Again, they're, 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 internal propensity to want to rebel against God. I don't know how often or how well Christians think about that, both for themselves and the community around them. And I say that because as Christians, we are all being sanctified into the image of Christ while at the same time still, or while simultaneously being sinners. And therefore, I don't know how much of that actually is thought through and influenced and formative for how we engage one another, not only to provide grace, but to also encounter um, or confront sinful actions and, and behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where the culture comes in, right? Is this kind of pervasive idea throughout American ideology that you're perfect just the way that you are mm. and sin's not that big of a deal. And I think that's one of the things that really upsets people um, within the church and outside of the church is when it's addressed like, well, people aren't perfect. Of course, people aren't perfect. Like that's true. People aren't perfect, but <laughs> that doesn't negate any responsibility with taking responsibility for the things that you've done and holding people accountable in the positions that they're in. So saying that, people just aren't perfect. God's not going to look at it that way on judgment day. Right. And I think if, if we're image bearers that are supposed to be withholding the kingdom of God, then we need to take that seriously. That yeah. especially when it comes to people that are in the positions of power, they're held to a higher standard. Should there be an investigation? Sure. But it, again, that's, that's where I'm going back to my first point of we've got to know that this happens and that people that we love and care are going to be perpetrators in this sometimes. Yeah. And if, if we just deny that, then that can be a really dangerous place to be because none of us yeah. are fully sanctified, right? Even the people right. from the pulpit, we have a lot of respect for, they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders, right? Yeah. yeah. Those people still aren't perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking through um, like tightening all that up. So, so they're there. In other words, there needs to be this Christians need to have biblical convictions centered around um, for instance, the doctrine of sin, right? That though, the spirit of God dwells in us. We are still simultaneously sinners. Now I say that as a result, I, I say that in order to move to what we've been talking about or what I just said earlier about like, that doesn't annul um, that I can't extend grace and forgiveness, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that these things, these sinful acts and behaviors don't need to be confronted. In fact, they do. And scripture is very clear that they need to be confronted. And I think that, yeah, I think you're right in that it brings us to the next point. What is then the culture of the church? And um, so we go from conviction to culture. And the reason culture is important is because, man, culture eats vision for breakfast and culture is developed and created by leadership. Like at the end of the day, when you're looking at it structurally, um, culture is developed by the leaders of that organization or in this case in the church. And so um, I think there needs to be, and this is before we get into a bunch of like experiential uh, um, different kinds of experiences people have had, but the reason culture is so important is because 
it is once it is one thing to say as a as a church this is what we believe it's another thing to discern and observe how that belief is is shaped in the everyday lives of both leadership and and the congregation um and so i think sometimes without there being any kind of transparency sometimes christians really do either put too high of a value on leadership and or put too high of a value on on the culture without having a value and conviction and so when abuse happens there are some congregants that don't even know that's what's happening both to themselves in terms of their own experience or in terms of the culture around them that like there would be instances where they would say you didn't even know this was happening and it's happening in broad daylight and so I think you, you like, as we continue moving forward, you need to have both. You need to have conviction and you need to look at the culture. And I think sometimes many Christians only look at the culture. Sometimes Christians only look at conviction and we need to do both as a result of the reality that, that this happens and that, that leadership or individuals who serve in greater degrees are fallible. Yeah. So, and I hope I'm not taking off taking us off here do it just um, (laughs) when you talk about looking in the culture in this context what what is it practically that you mean yeah i like i think what i what i want to see when it comes to the culture of a church is man i i want to know um like let's take pastoral leadership there are these character qualities or qualifications that the apostle Paul lists in first Timothy three in Titus one, Peter uh, rep- uh, gives a few qualifications in first Peter five. And so not only do I want to see that those qualities are being, that those qualities are in the pastoral leadership from the pulpit and in the context of the Sunday gathering. I also want to see if those qualities are present outside of the Sunday gathering. And not just in the context of the local coffee shop, but specifically in the context of their home. In addition to that, I also want to see if those character qualities actually shape the way the entire pastoral team operate. Because in in other experiences that I've had, when pastoral leadership has not done a good job serving the congregation that they've been entrusted with, particularly in the context of plurality of eldership, there has been a disconnect among that leadership. And so what ends up happening is there is one section of that leadership that has one culture, another section that has another culture, another section that has a different culture. And that is, man, that is a catastrophe in terms of leadership culture as it shapes, influences, and serves the congregation. And so as an individual who's visiting a church, yes, I want to go out to coffee with the pastor, but I also want to see like how the pastor treats his wife. I also want to see um, what the other pastors are like around one another um, outside of the context of the Sunday gathering and the coffee shop. And I think what makes that oftentimes difficult for many larger churches or larger congregations is many congregants don't have that kind of access to uh, pastoral leadership. Um, but I get a sense of that through, for instance, group leaders. And so I, I, I want to get plugged into a group, but I still want to be able to be watchful. I still want to be, I still want to participate, but I do know that 
the way in which they carry themselves is a direct result of the culture and influence of, of pastoral leadership um, or leadership from the top, however you want to look at it. And so <clears throat> um, the question was, man, what, what is exactly I'm looking at? I want to see things outside of the context of Sundays. I want to see things in the context of their homes. I want to see con the things out of the context of like the coffee shops. Um, I want to see the, the ugly side of things. I want to see the ugly side of community. I think that's, that's what I would, what I would recommend, or that's what I would say to, to an individual. Um, additionally, <clears throat> in the context of Sunday mornings, I want to be like the Bereans. And I think it's Acts 17. I, I want to be examining the scriptures that they are preaching through in such a way that is holding them accountable to the sound teaching of scripture. And because as an instance, pastoral leadership can be so influential and respected by many congregants. I think that can be good. I think that can also be very bad because for many congregants, for many congregants, they are, they elevate pastoral leadership. And at the same time, they elevate pastoral leadership and minimize their role in sanctification. So when it comes to my congregation, I want them in their Bibles. They like, I want their Bibles to be open. I want notes to be taken. I want them. My favorite sound on Sunday is when I hear the pages of the Bibles being turned when I'm like referencing other, uh, having cross references of other scriptures. And I hear the pages being turned. Those are individuals who are going to pull me aside and say, so you said this, but when I read whatever. Um, I'm having trouble making a connection. When that happens, that's a really good congregation. Depending on how pastoral leadership responds will help you determine what kind of leadership culture actually exists. If I, if I receive that well in humility and even repent from that, or man, you're right. I should have done this. This is actually what I meant. Whatever that conversation looks like, that's actually really good because it makes congreg the congregation feel heard and honored. If it's, well, you don't really know because I was reading Calvin's commentaries and this is a little bit too more, too, too complex for you to understand. That's when, you know, pastoral leadership are douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, dude, that's really good. That's, I think that's so helpful because I mean, some of the, you said a lot of good things, but some I of the things are really, <laughs> some of the things that really stood out is uh, one, I mean, the responsibility of the church member, right? Yeah. I think that's something that people aren't totally aware of a lot of times. So at least from what I've experienced in DFW yeah, um, and membership classes that I've gone to before, yeah, uh, there's not a lot of education even on that, uh, of mm -hmm. what it looks like to be a good church member. Uh, and so I, I think sometimes people don't realize how much ownership they really should have in yeah. those kind of situations. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a buddy the other day too, and something he, he made a really good point about sometimes basically what you're saying that sometimes pastors or preachers are held in such a high regard that rather than confronting them uh, directly, that church members all sometimes feel like they can't approach them mm -hmm. because of they, they, you know, kind of hold them at this, this higher level than everybody else. Um, which I think, you know, respect and reverence for your, for your pastor is good. Like you shouldn't just come in like, Hey, 
did you know you're an idiot? Because you totally messed this up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a way to approach it, but, but I think it should be approached and it's kind of a loving action really. Yeah. I mean, cause going back to kind of the higher expectations on church leaders or someone's up there preaching, they've got a lot of responsibility on them. Yeah. And so I think it's loving to point things out if, if there is real error. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because it, I also think, again, I'm coming at it from the context of that pastoral plurality of leadership perspective, because like if things like that, right. Like uh, me, for instance, I'll just use storehouse McAllen as an example. Like I, I say it from the pulpit. I want people in their Bibles. I want people to gut check me. I want my sermon reviewed. I want people to, I want to hang out with people in the context out, outside of the context of the Sunday gathering, all of that stuff. But in addition to that, like, <clears throat> I want the congregation to know the leaders that I'm developing so that they can use some discernment in terms of what kind of culture is being produced. And so um, if a congregant is applying discernment and um, holding the preacher or pastor accountable, especially as they are raising other, other, let's say in this case, other men for pastoral ministry, I want to know that they're like not just bringing up yes men. And I think a lot of churches, a lot of churches do that. And I mean this negatively. They do that really, really well. They bring in yes men. They bring in experts on statistics. They raise up department heads and not shepherds. And so when that happens, especially when it comes to yes men, they're just following. I guess the lead guy, when they raise up um, individuals who care much more about, for instance, statistics and financial constructs, um, or individuals who are just really good at running departments and not necessarily shepherding people in specific ministry contexts, when that ends up happening, um, it, it, it not only makes leadership so exclusive and unaccessible, but it makes it even, I think, sometimes more difficult for the congregation to actually get that kind of access to pastoral leadership. Um, and so anyway, I say, I say all of that because um, I want my congregation to know who's being developed. I, wa I want them to be around those individuals. Um, like I think about some of the men that, um, I'm, I'm kind of spending a lot of time with who are discerning their call to pastoral ministry. Three of them are walking into incredibly difficult seasons. And when they told me this, my response was good. I want you to like, I want to see how you're going to respond to that. I, you know, like you won't have access to this area of ministry um, until I see you respond to this. And, and, and you may not even be called to this, but I want to see you respond to just some grueling, seasons because you need that. And I think people want to see that. I think sometimes people put a lot of trust in, in, in pastoral leadership. Um, and I understand why I don't think that there shouldn't be any trust. Um, but I think many leaders in ministry abuse that. And one of the ways in which they abuse that is by raising up poor leaders. And it tends to be around the context of yes, men, um, individuals who, like I said, love financial constructs and statistics and or uh, department heads instead of shepherds. And when you raise up those individuals who are not shepherds, the congregation will suffer. And I love that. I love the way you put that. I think that's really uh, 
helpful because yeah, what's the, what's someone getting in ministry for even, you know, do they yeah. see it as they're trying to make this thriving business or they're trying to expand the kingdom of God? Cause that doesn't yeah. always look like what do you, we expect it to look like. That yeah, always exactly. look like successful and, and think, numbers. And yeah. And I think, but here's the thing, that's the key though. Like there may be an individual who the Lord calls to pastoral ministry because that individual has the characteristics and qualifications of a shepherd and their gifting is in financial constructs. Like that's needed. That, that would actually make a church healthy. When we save money, when we give money, when we spend money in the context of various ministries um, in the city, even on salaries or, or whatever building type stuff looks like for that particular church, like that's needed. That's organization. And that's also being stewards of the finances that we've been entrusted with. That's needed. And um, if this individual is called to pastoral ministry, they are first and primarily a shepherd. If, if they are not, then they're gifting in, and I'm just using this as an example, but their gifting in financial administration is still needed, but their role, their function is needed, but their role fits in a different area of ministry. It's not going to be in pastoral ministry. And so I think when, when pastors and leaders raise up individuals without considering their character, um, yeah, the congregation suffers uh, like all of the time. I don't know that there hasn't, unless there's been a profound um, display of repentance from leadership. And I've seen that happen once. I'm not saying it's the only time it's happened in the context of church history. I've only seen that once. Um, but unless there is this profound demonstration of repentance, the congregation is always going to suffer as, as a result of that because they're not being shepherded. They're not being cared for. They're not being loved. They're not being tended to. That's what that's what Jesus told Peter in John twenty one. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I do. Then feed my sheep. Lord, do you uh, you know Peter? Do you love me? Yes, you know I do. Then tend to my sheep. Like that is the primary role of a pastor. Gifting is important, and it comes second to character. And so that would be the role I think of like leadership. I know I keep using pastoral ministry as the example, but that would be the, the idea of, of leadership. In addition to that, there is all, and we've touched on this a little bit. In addition to that, there is a responsibility that the church has like throughout the new Testament, the, the church is empowered to not just hold leadership accountable. And, and, and obviously they should, but for instance, when I look at Ephesians four, the role of leadership is to equip the church for the work of ministry so that they would present one another as mature before Christ so that they would be grounded in sound doctrine and not tossed to and fro uh, by the wind of, by the winds of doctrine that I think that's Ephesians four. And so the church, the congregation has a role in also guarding one another and guarding leadership. Like, they should push back. They should have questions. They shouldn't just take things at point blank and kind of just go with it because it sounds good. When I brought up other leaders in front of our church before, I said, hey, this individual as an example, maybe receiving development or this individual is considering pastoral ministry. What I've told the church is your job is to take them out to dinner, take them out to lunch, spend time with them, be with them, ask them hard questions see what their life looks like outside of, you know, the Sunday gathering. And then I'll add like this little asterisk. And if you don't do this, 
because you don't care or you're indifferent toward this when it comes time to install them in whatever capacity of leadership they're in. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> you know, because you you have like this is not just an opportunity, this is your responsibility. And I find that many congregants in varying congregations or in varying churches like don't want to go through the work of getting to know leadership or or holding leadership accountable. Yeah. But want to be there to critique if something bad happens. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of the ministry equivalent of what is it? I was going to use a sports reference. Why try? Yeah, do it. Yeah, go for it. Don't man, don't worry. Uh, No, I I forget it because I don't really keep up with it. So what is it? Monday morning quarterbacking? Sure. That's the one. That's the one I was thinking. Sports. Sports. Yeah. That's that's good though, man. That's I think that's really helpful information uh, to see kind of the the forefront because all of that stuff is relevant before anything even happens. It's mm-hmm. like this is intentionality around that, like for leadership for members, yeah. Um, yeah, and how these installation process should happen and our involvement before we even get to a bad situation. Yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, leaders are not. Um, what's the word? Are leaders are not immune to Matthew 18, you know? And so, um, congregants, man, I, I think, and I, this is a very general sense because or this is a very general comment. Cause what I want to say is, man, congregants have a loving responsibility to hold leadership accountable and apply things like Matthew 18 when it comes to sinful actions or behavior. Now saying that I know that many individuals in churches tried that in leadership responded terribly, whether it's by the way in which they responded at that moment or excommunicating the individual or firing staff for one reason or another. And man, those are the worst. And that sucks because um, that really, really hurts people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and that's what causes them to be so weary of churches and leadership and at the same time, it causes them to be so weary about, about Jesus, you know? Um, and like, there's no, like, I want to say things in the sense of like, Jesus is the only faithful one who will not let you down. He is, he is the only one who has kept his faithfulness to you and called you with an everlasting love. And at the same time, um, he uses broken, inadequate vessels to display his goodness, his faithfulness, and his loving kindness. And, and, and that's all true. That doesn't mean it doesn't sting when leadership jacks that up mm-hmm. and an individual is like thinking through how am I, like, what am I to do next? You know, mm-hmm. like all of that is good and true, I think. And what about for the individual that just had a, a tremendous experience and they're very hurt by the church? I think I, I would not want to sugarcoat that kind of stuff. Like, man, a lot of people are hurt when that happens and it really yeah. does affect them. It really, it's, it, it's an incredibly formative experience and that that's really, really hard. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I can keep going just because I've, I've, I've seen it, you know? Yeah. So- <laughs> Well, let me, let me back up just a second. Back it up. Uh, just, back it up. Just to, <laughs> depending on who's listening here. So when you're referring to Matthew 18, <laughs> you're talking about confrontation, right? Yeah. Okay. And so uh, 
15 through 17. So yeah, that's the one. Get it. <laughs> All right. So let's read this just in case anyone is uh, yeah. unaware of what we're referring to. Yeah. So Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Mm-hmm. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so what you were saying is that that's a responsibility that we have with each other. So if, you know, Marco sins against me in my small group and he's just my buddy, then I need to follow this pattern of confrontation. Right. Uh, But Marco being in the pulpit, if he commits the sin, that that's still the expectation doesn't change. That still applies. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's not, well, I don't really talk to him. So I'm going to hop on Twitter instead and talk about this. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that's that. I think that's part of the personal responsibility in what we're talking about on the congregation or on the congregant. Right. Like if, a pastor sins against you. If a brother sins against you, a brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them his fault and go do it one-on-one. And I think the, the other thing is the desire for this or the, the purpose behind this isn't just to call an individual out, though that may be what they need, but the desire is because you you desire to see repentance take place. You want them to be sanctified. You want them to grow in their likeness of G in the likeness of Jesus. And so when you read through Matthew 18 and, and Jesus says, go and tell your brother of his sin, do it alone. Like I may, that may mean I have that conversation a couple of times. I think sometimes some individuals just want to do it once like, okay, he didn't do it. Let me go grab another two to three people so that we can do it and tell him again. Like, no, I actually want to pursue this individual a couple of times. And then the purpose of, Moving on to the next step, that is, if the individual doesn't repent or isn't listening or, you know, continues doing what they're doing, the act of actually being, bringing two or three witnesses is, is to protect not just me, but primarily it's to protect them from me. Because some individuals just want to, like, have conflict. Um, and so, so there are these, like, lines to consider when, when, it, when it comes to this form of confrontation and, and discipline. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like all of these different steps that grow in intensity and grow in degree, the desire behind them is to see repentance. So, so for instance, as a, as a pastor, there are several, my, my church doesn't know like everyone else's like sin, like for like, that's really broad. Let me, as an example, say there's a couple where uh, a married couple where there is uh, adultery committed, right? If the individual, the spouse who committed adultery repents and, you know, they're in counseling and we're beginning to see their marriage become redeemed and renewed and, and, and we're, we're seeing some good stuff, right? The congregation may never know about that. And it's not that I want to keep that hidden. It's that that's the whole point of Matthew 18. It's so that it doesn't become public because there are all of these occasions of personal repentance behind doors where people actually turn away from their sin, turn towards Jesus in genuine repentance and get to work. You know, 
And I think when you look at the context of Matthew 18, he's providing, Jesus is providing these degrees of intensity because the desire is to see them repent and turn to the Lord, not just shame them. Yeah. Yeah. And that stuff is great when that happens too. That glorifies God. Yes. It doesn't have to be public. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and so the, the thing that pops up for me here that just the thinking about this and specifically in a counseling context, right. Yeah. Is that this is hard. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is not easy to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't negate our responsibility here. Yeah. Um, and I think this is going to be easier for some people than it is for others. Yes. Um, I mean, you think about the types of families that people grow up in. Mm-hmm. There's very real situations where if you try to deal with conflict in this kind of way, there's going to be a big issue, right? Like um, that, and that could be any number of things that could be just like a really uh, angry response that could be, you know, physical violence in some cases, right? That's not probably the most common, but it it does happen. Yeah. And so if you're coming from a situation like that, then it's like, why would I just bring this up to someone? Why would I rock the boat? Yeah. Yeah. Cause those situations are formative. I mean, when you're, when you're Mm -hmm. a kid and what you're learning about conflict is things go really bad. If I try to be honest with someone, Mm -hmm. then that's not something that really just kind of naturally changes without any sort of intentionality. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't mean that, you know, that's necessarily that like that person's fault. Like kids don't kind of decide what family they're in. They don't decide the kind of parents that they have. Right. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that when we're made a new creation, this is our calling is yeah. to confront these things directly. Yeah. And to be able to be charitable towards each other, to be able to be responsive towards each other. And that is super hard. And so maybe, yeah. you know, if, if we feel just in, unable to even do this, like if it legitimately feels impossible, I think that's something that we need to have a conversation around yeah. either with, you know, people that hopefully we have a, you know, a good biblical community that we're connected to. And we can yeah. talk about these things of, I don't know how to do this. Like I've never seen anybody do this yeah. when I have seen people try to do it. It's gone horribly, yeah. but I'm understanding that this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, and just being open about, you know, how you're wrestling with this concept. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think one thing to understand is that the perfect church does not exist. Like she is not to be found. And even when you consider, for instance, like the, the, the new Testament, like Paul is ripping up people left and right, right. Peter is, um, encouraging a church that is dispersed. James is very frustrated. (laughs) John is, at an old age, reminding them of who they are and how to be a light in the midst of darkness. And so when I consider all, and I mean, Jude is talking about um, false teachers that not are coming to the church, but that are already in there. Like Jude is saying they're, they are here. They are in this church that he's writing to. And so when you consider the new Testament, like all the, all the churches have, have issues. Um, I think it's only the church to um, the letter to the Thessalonians where it's first Thessalonians and Paul is being very encouraging to them because they're, they're doing really, really well. Unlike all of these other churches, but even within, um, 
even within the church and uh, even within the Thessalonians, like there was still immaturity. Um, and so they still had their own issues um, to, to, to work through. So there's no perfect church. She does not uh, exist. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about this where that does not annul my personal responsibility and sanctification within the church. Um, and my eyes are to be fixed on the beauty and splendor of Jesus and to consider the local church, because that is the way in which Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to a watching world, right? That's what Paul says in Ephesians three. And so we've got to do business with that. Now, one of the things that we were talking about offline, because again, we can, we can talk about this for, for, for long extended periods of times. But one of the things that we were talking about offline was there is a distinction, and I know we can continue to say more, but there is a distinction of, of, of abuse, spiritual abuse, relational abuse in the church versus rebuke, right? And there is this, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> there, there, there is, there's a distinction between relational and spiritual abuse that is real. And I think we've, we've t- been talking about that, but then there's this other thing called rebuke that is biblical. And I think the issue I have there, and you can speak further into this, the issue I have there is some individuals have actually, I'm saying some, cause this, this is not obviously not everybody's story, but there are some individuals who actually have not experienced abuse in the church. They were just rebuked and do not want to deal they do not want to repent of their sin therefore they fabricate a story um where and i think i was telling you about eric mason was talking about this um the context of his sermon was i think deconstruction but but these individuals fabricate a narrative to suit their emotions i guess when in reality they're just not repenting of their sin yeah i think that's definitely out there um and that's where, man, I feel like we could go so many directions with this. Because <laughs> one of the one of the things this makes me think of is again using the the Twitter example. Like you're just gonna find people on social media that are like right there with you wherever it is, regardless of the situation, you know. Yeah. And um, I think that can be really dangerous because uh, I think our part of our responsibility as, as members, if this is brought to us, I think is to be able to give some space to talk through what happened, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, you know, sometimes we can, we can legitimately be hurt by something that, that has gone on. Yeah. Um, yeah. But maybe after processing it through with someone that isn't just sitting there telling us that we're making it up, but also isn't sitting there telling us this person's the worst you need to, yeah. you know, yeah. blah, 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 or whatever. Um, that I think sometimes we can actually come to a different understanding of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we're, I just want to say it again, to be explicit, say we're it. not talking about obvious situations of like real actual abuse. We're, right. we're talking about like misunderstandings that maybe were hurtful in, in right. some regard. Maybe it's the way the person went about it. Um, maybe they had the wrong intentions. You know, you never know. There's, yeah. there's, it can go wrong in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, but I think that's where we need to have someone that we trust and that, you know, is kind of grounded along the same lines as we are. So that if it's a situation where they're like, oh, this is actually an area of your life that you probably do need to repent of, yeah. um, that we have space to hear that. 
But yeah. I don't think that really comes by jumping down people's throats generally, uh, yeah. which I think is where that can make the situation complicated. It's like, well, I'm being truthful. It's like, well, you can be truthful and not be helpful though. You know? Right. Right. There's, there's tact. There's, I mean, just, just wisdom in how we go about confronting these things. Um, so, yeah. I'm trying to look up something. Keep going. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that, um, it's a topic. Sure, oh, I was going to, sorry. Cause you're like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> um, no, yeah. I had something else, but it just disappeared. Oh, I'm sorry, Randa. It. It's your it's your face. I was gonna well, well I was gonna um quote Keller, right? Uh so he says, love without truth is sentimentality. Uh it supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. And so um I mean, so one, I, I, would, I would agree. So I think the method and how we address hearts and sin matters. And I think that's why I'm coming at it from a very, very general, I think, view or perspective where if an individual did everything to be gracious uh, and truthful and did not sacrifice truth for love or love for truth, um, because that does happen. Um, in other words, they do it well. Uh, many individuals who respond to that by fabricating stories of abuse rather than acknowledging and recognizing I was just rebuked and rather than, and fine, I may even need to still work through the way in which that individual approached me. And that does not annul my sin. That does not annul my personal responsibility or repentance and uh, and I think some individuals, uh, because they don't like that, because they don't like hearing something that they need to, needed to to receive or hear, and I and I mean that if you did it in the best way possible, but because they don't like that, man, well, I don't really know if this is the church for me. I don't really know if this is where God is calling me. Uh, I don't know if I'm really loved here. And it's like, all right, dude. Again, like you individuals like that deflect and dismiss their personal responsibility. They dismiss the condition of their heart and, and in and of themselves do not repent and turn from their sin toward, toward the Lord Jesus. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, that reminded me of what the other thing that I was going to say. There it is. Say. Go, go before you forget. <laughs> is that, you know, some of these ideas might not necessarily be coming from scripture or actual Christianity right. around like what should we should be experiencing. Um, Cause I feel like I've heard, you know, well, Christians aren't supposed to judge thrown in my face a hundred times by yeah. people who don't understand Christianity. Some right. of them being self-proclaimed Christians, right. Um, some of, some of them not, you know, and I, I think that's just takes us right back to, we need to understand the word. We need to be in it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Cause there's otherwise we're not going to be able to know we're not going to be able to discern when we're getting that bad advice from whoever, maybe it's a believer, maybe it's a yeah. non-believer. We're not going to be able to know if a, a pastor is not, you know, if they're misleading a flock, we're not going to be able to identify that. Yeah. If that's the person that we're solely focused on to get our, you know, yeah, growth and sanctification from. Yeah. Um, that's good. So Christians are supposed to judge. I've gotten the whole, I need grace. Why aren't you giving me grace right now? I've gotten that one. 
Yeah. Which means you don't understand what just the word grace means (laughs) because (laughs) grace literally means it's undeserved. Yeah. It is undeserved, unmerited favor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's not something that can be demanded. Yeah. Um, Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Yeah. Even the concept of not getting something you deserve. Yeah. And, and love too. That's, it's like, if you're getting your, your understanding of love from Instagram and whatever kind of, you know, post say that feel good about what, what love is and just fully accepting someone and all that stuff. It's like, that's not really loving someone. You know, if I, if my daughter says that she wants to walk in front of a school bus because she wants to see what it feels like to get hit by a car. And I say that it's, you know, I'm, I should, if I'm going to love her well, that I should just accept that and let her do what right, she wants. Right. Like there's not even a range of, well, maybe that's a good idea. It's like, this dude's a psychopath. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and if I think we have to put those things into those terms though, because it's, a, it's usually a lot more nuanced than that. Yeah. And so if, if your definition of love is you don't want to have a difficult conversation with someone, you don't want to be afraid of hurting their feelings, which takes me right back to emotional health, right? We've mm-hmm. got to be able to handle the distressing situation that we're putting ourselves in, not only so that we can honor God and what we've been called to do, but also so that we can love this person well mm-hmm. and be loved well and receive those things when people bring that to us. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. So how do you, how do you think um, you counsel and disciple, for instance, listeners, people who, who are uh, members at churches, like to address some of these things? And what are the marks of a healthy church so that as this kind of stuff happens or brews, people are able to confront it? Um, I think that one of the most important things is being able to create space to have a conversation. Hmm. So I think if we lean too hard into abuse doesn't really happen, you're just overreacting. Mm. Uh, this person wouldn't do that. Then we're going to miss protecting the flock. Yeah. Uh, but I think the other side of that is we can, we can, we can connect with someone's experience and understand and know that they experienced some real hurt yeah. without saying that everything, the way that they say it is absolute truth. Right. You know, I think, I think we can be comfortable in that gray area. At least that's the way that I understand that. It's like, it's not my job to discern what is exactly true. Right. Right. Cause I don't know that that just feels like a real mess to try to put myself in. It can be. Yeah. Um, Yeah. In some situations. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I think we've got to have space for that, that it, if every single thing that they say doesn't line up exactly the way that we think that we, that it should, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're lying. Cause I mean, if someone's in going back to the more extreme side of abuse, you know, if someone's being sexually assaulted or something like that, maybe they're not going to remember it exactly as it happened. That doesn't mean that it's made up. It right. just means that when your brain is in a situation where you're under extreme stress like that, you're trying to find ways to survive. You're not just sitting there accounting all the, what seemed to be some other person's idea of relevant details in the situation. Yeah. yeah. I think that's good. So that yeah. would be my main point. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think that the only thing I would, I would add would be um, as individuals look at the culture of a church, they are also going to be um, as I get plugged in to a church, if I'm a member of a, of a congregation, like I'm also going to be one who's helping to shape that culture. And I think one of the things that I want to, I would encourage 
Christians, right, is, is to be like the Berean Christians. Uh, so this is Acts 17, 10, and 11. And so Luke writes, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received, that's the, I love this. They received the word with all eagerness. And so if we stop there, that's where I think a lot of congregations are. They receive the word with eagerness. They take it for what the pastor or preacher is saying. And then it's, that's it. That's as far as it goes. That was a good message. How could there be abuse? Have you listened to the sermons? Come on. Right. But there's the second part. So Luke goes on to say, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so, um, man, I would, I would encourage listeners who are in churches as members, uh, visiting churches, joining churches, considering joining a church, becoming a member. Um, yes, you want to hear what's being preached. You want to, you want to see the culture inside and outside of the context of the Sunday gathering. And you want to find yourself examining the scriptures daily, um, so that you would see, man, what God is doing and, and the culture that is being, um, cultivated at that at that little church boom preach yeah man so i think like you said earlier uh man there's clearly a lot of different things that we could talk about but i know that we're running out of time and so at the very least for now i hope that this to a degree just uh helps to encourage and uh um i hope this benefits several of our of our listeners as they as they work through some of these really serious um issues within the church yeah, man. Cool. I hope so too. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for joining us here at the Reforming Lounge. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it, and we will see you next week. Deuces. Thank you for listening to the Reforming Lounge podcast. Follow us on social media at the Reforming Lounge on Instagram. If you have questions, we want to hear from you. Visit the Reforming Lounge.com.